0: Welcome to the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and
1: consciousness. It was a constructive process that created a group intelligence, and you left with the feeling that the decision that we came to was actually smarter than my own decision or smarter than the conversation that we had. Join us now for a conversation with Orange Slossberg and Michael Lerner.
2: Orange Slosberg, welcome back to the new school. Thank you very much. Oren, you uh, are the new Chief Strategies Officer at Commonweal. Uh, you're also developing a new program here uh, based on uh, the work you did with an organization called Visual Thinking Strategies. Um, and you've been here at Commonweal, I think, for five months now. Yes, yeah, so, that's right. November. Right. So before we go any further... Uh, What is Visual Thinking Strategies?
1: (laughs) It's one of those things that is so simple to show and so hard to describe. Right. Um, Visual Thinking Strategies, or VTS, originates out of a unique collaboration between two people. One was a director of education at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The other is a cognitive psychologist at Harvard. And it was developed in response to the fact that At MoMA, they couldn't demonstrate that anybody, that visitors were not learning at the museum what the museum thought they were teaching. They actually assessed what people knew when they came into the museum, they assessed what they knew when they left, and they assessed what they knew six months later, and they found that what the museum thought they were teaching, they couldn't found. They couldn't demonstrate that they were learning. So Howard Gardner of uh, Project Zero at Harvard Introduced Philip Yennerman who was the director of education at MoMA to Abigail Housen the cognitive psychologist who was working on a theory of aesthetic development and the two of them developed VTS as a way to engage people viewers with art specifically at the time it was actually MoMA's collection and that's how it was used at the beginning with time it fell into the hands of educators at schools, at universities, in different environments, and those educators started giving feedback to the organization, well, to, to Philip and Abigail, that they're seeing a lot more happening, that there's side effects, which have eventually evolved into the core effects, that the people who were engaged in the conversation were demonstrating different kinds of thinking, that the way that they were engaging was different, um, the way that they were accessing and relating to the art was different. And with time, VTS turned from a museum tool to a strategy that is now used in hundreds of schools across um, well, across the world, I could say now, because it's been used in, in Holland and Israel and Japan and, and Costa Rica and other places. Um, both in public school settings and in colleges, in medical schools, um, in a variety of different environments. So it's a way that art is used, that engagement with art is used to develop new cognitive skills. It's a way that through the experience with visual art, you actually start developing the capacity to dealing, well, we hope that you're developing the capacity to deal with more complex issues.
2: Now, Before we go to the demonstration, you joined. uh, You became the executive director of VTS in May of 2006, I believe. And um, but before that, you had been involved in in developing it in Northern California. Is that correct? Through the uh, MMG Foundation. Mm -hmm. So when did you actually begin your involvement with VTS? Well.
1: I got involved with VTS following a meeting on the beach in Provincetown. Mm -hmm. When I met Philip Yanoin, who was the director of education at MoMA, um, at the time already working with VTS, and that was in 2003. Mm -hmm. And following that encounter, we started talking about the work they were doing. I was at the time working with um, setting up community centers and youth organizations. And at that time, Michael Martin was a woman who owned a gallery in San Francisco. It was a fine arts gallery representing a lot of mid-career local artists. And she was so entranced with BTS that we were sitting together at a training, and she said to me, I will give you all the profits from my gallery if you bring this to San Francisco. So, and that's what happened. I actually ended up running her gallery for um, a year in the South of Market area in San Francisco. Where in 2003, I was trained as a VTS trainer. We started working in San Francisco. It started with one school and then with time expanded to about, within the first three years, we reached about a third of the elementary schools in San Francisco. That's
2: about 20, 25 schools. And parenthetically, when you mentioned your prior work with youth organizations, there was a lot of it, but you were also the founding executive director of the LGBT Community Center in San Francisco. That's right.
1: the The building on Octavia and Market in San Francisco, which is the, the San Francisco LGBT Center. I was I was the first executive director there, cutting the ribbon with Nancy Pelosi, uh-huh. and Willie Brown, and that gang.
2: So, after you joined uh, VTS, um, you really took an organization that, when you came, was a very small project with Mm -hmm. the founders and made it a national and indeed, uh, to some degree, an international presence.
1: When It was interesting because Philip and Abigail are both researchers Mm -hmm. and that's what they do. Abigail would spend her entire life studying and developing new research projects Um, and Philip was someone who worked at several museums including the Met, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. They were very much interested in developing new programs and doing research. When I started working in San Francisco, it was one of the first opportunities that this program was applied, that was actually used in a new environment, used as a tool that was to be distributed. So we were exploring the VTS mechanism, the method existed. And what my role was to distribute, disseminate, figure out how to train, how to bring it to scale, um, how to increase the effectiveness So after working in San Francisco with VTS and seeing the exponential growth, I mean, it grew in San Francisco to the point where the school district was calling me, the outside nonprofit, asking me, how do you get schools to commit to this? How do you get all your teachers together to be trained in one day? The school district couldn't get their own teachers to do it. So, I mean, and it's not that I'm a brilliant salesman, it's that the the program itself really attracted the teachers, so they were coming to us Um, And that's not the level of commitment that San Francisco Unified was used to seeing from their teachers. So when the national office of VTS, which was at the time four or five people, um, saw what was happening in San Francisco, the founders and the board of directors asked if we can take that experience and try that on a national level, and that's what we did. So by the time I left, we had regions in... um, well, in California and San Francisco and Sonoma, actually Robin is a director of VTS in Sonoma and Napa um, counties, uh, in Portland, in Seattle, in Boston, in New York, um, I'm probably missing a few places with large scale implementations in Minneapolis and Indianapolis. And at some point we actually extended our reach internationally as well. So we really went from a small organization and working as a type team and really brought it to new levels. Well, I would guess that there's probably over 100,000 students getting VTS. So I don't even know how to start counting because it's one of those methods that people learn and then they just run for it and then three years later you get a phone call from somebody, remember when I came to that VTS training three years ago? Well now I'm using it with 500 kids and that happens more than not.
2: Mm-hmm. And why are teachers so interested in VTS? <laughs> Um, I would say to make it simple is because VTS
1: allows them to do what is it that they want to do. So when teachers in public education, at least in this country, go into teaching, they, their drive is not, I would love to raise the math test scores for the young people in fill in the blank in San Francisco and Oakland. They're not driven to improve test scores in English or math. They often go in because they like engaging, they like teaching, they like seeing growth, they like seeing young people excited about their education. Now, we all have models of the 10% who are going into teaching for the wrong reasons and maybe shouldn't be there, but a majority of teachers are driven to be to working with young people because that's they feel comfortable, they want to make a change, they want to make a difference. Um, and I can almost guarantee that 100% that they're not going there to satisfy the test requirements of, of well, at this point, the federal government. What VTS does, it allows the teacher to be in the role of a facilitator, and the young people in the classroom start sharing their voices. So suddenly the young people are engaging from a very authentic place, which is not the natural way that students behave in the classroom.
2: So you recently visited Israel. Yes. And you did some VTS work there. You in fact Uh, grew up in Israel uh, uh, after your parents uh, returned to Israel uh, as when you were a child. Uh, Say a little bit about what teachers told you about their experience using BTS with, with kids in Israel.
1: So I spent 10 days in Israel and in that process I probably observed about 50 teachers in different classrooms first through sixth grade during BTS with their students. And I I left Israel 25 years ago. So when the students that I saw were bringing up issues around violence and war in the classrooms, I was surprised, but I said to myself, you've been away for so long. Um, And that's what happened. I mean, these images that a lot of them are from the curriculum that we use in this country are not images of violence. I mean, there's images of a mother and father lying on a beach, and a young kid in second grade raises their hand and says, I think they're resting after the Civil War. You know, that their frame of reference was, you know, it's like the whole country suffers from a major case of PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. and Which would make sense, concerning what's been going on there for the last 2,500 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it never, it never really, I never realized it until I really went and I saw, I mean, 50 classes, that's about 2,000 kids. And not that everyone said it, but every conversation, they were talking about the bombs that were going off, or the violence that was going off, or the civil war that was going on, when there was no actual evidence in the images. The images are not images of war, they are not images of violence. In some cases, it might be a kid crying, but in most cases, they're really images of people in different parts of their life engaging in different activities. So I was surprised by that. But the thing that surprised me even more was that there were teachers that came up to me and said, what am I doing wrong with VTS that all of my young people are bringing up these issues of war and Holocaust, which... To me, what it meant is that they weren't aware of it. And these are Israeli teachers teaching Israeli kids in Israel, all of them in the area of Tel Aviv or within the suburbs of Tel Aviv. And that was very much an awakening moment because, I mean, I assume the teachers had the same experience growing up, but as adults they have different ways to cope with the violence around them. But it shocked me that they were not aware of what their students were doing And it also made me think about what are they doing in the rest of their class time that they have not heard that happen in all the other classes. VTS is an hour a month. So for the other 160 hours, what kind of dialogue, what kind of thinking is going on that this has never emerged in some of those
2: teachers who have been teaching for many years? So in the language of archetypal psychology, which I've been spending a lot of time on, as you know, uh, images are, are the work of the soul. And so, what was happening with VTS, you you put an image, uh, not a warlike image up, uh, but that image triggers at the soul level for Mm -hmm. these children, these images of violence, which are are their their felt soul experiences. But school tends to function for the most part at this cognitive level, you know, ego development, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, which is not characteristically tapping into the soul level. And lo and behold, the teachers didn't know what was going on with the souls of their children.
1: And I think that school, is not only that they do not deal with that level, is right. that they feel like they're not allowed to. Right. So, I mean, you know definitely on a policy level, issues that deal with that area, like the arts, are taken out of curriculums all over the world. Right. Well, though I, I have to say that this country is a lot worse off than most. Right. But I think that also, if you looked at it from the perspective If we were to ask a neuroscientist about what happened, keeping that uh, archetypal psychology in mind, I wonder if what they might say is that the way art accesses the brain is by tapping into other parts, not just the frontal cortex, which is the executive function. So in school, when you're doing English and math and you're analyzing from a logical perspective, it's your frontal cortex that is really screening everything. An image, in a sense, jumps over it. I mean, in some ways, it could be tapping into other parts of the brain, um, and there's a lot of evidence how behavior changes when it taps into other parts of the brain. And, and you know, my my feeling about neuroscience—I um, guess I'll be saying this—and. <laughs> it will stick is that neuroscience often tells us what we already know. It just provides pretty pictures. So in a sense that neuroscientists might tell us that we have a flight and fear part of our brain. It's like, well, we knew that even before you had a picture of it. Um, And when you look at maps of brains, they often tell us what we already know. And I think that if we were looking at how visual art, and I have a feeling that other forms of art as well, I'm just not as versed in, let's say, music or poetry. Um, I think that one of the reasons um, that images interact differently and kind of solicit a different kind of behavior is that the, the logical executive functions are not as comfortable with source material that's as ambiguous, that's not as concrete. It doesn't necessarily fit into a logical model as easily, so it allows other parts of the brain, and in some ways one could call those authentic voices, or the soul, um, emerges. You don't have the same kind of filters because the the executive function is a lot of filters. You know, there's someone who was just studying serial murders and they found, lo and behold, they don't have the same kind of screening and filters strategies in their brain the way the rest of the population is. You know, we all have them. That's a good thing because every time you were mad at somebody, if you killed them, there wouldn't be a most functioning society. The executive function actually filters that out. With serial murders, they found out that they don't have that. So we're finding that that frontal cortex really has a lot of influence in how we make meaning and how do we access other parts of our brain and it all gets filtered through it. And I think art has a way of jumping over.
2: It's so fascinating. I've been uh, reading this morning a book uh, by Tom Cheatham called The Green Man who is uh, uh, somebody deeply engaged with archetypal psychology but through the lens of uh, Henri Corbin who was a great French uh, 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 educator who studied the work of Ibn Arabi, the greatest Sufi mystic and the Shiite uh, Sufis and he uh, Cheatham was talking about the evolution of cognition from um, participatory cognition um, up until 1200 in different forms, and 1100, to disjunctive cognition where the subject and the object are separated. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you were talking, it just struck me that you're absolutely right about how we do it, with the frontal cortex and all that, but that there's a whole history of the evolution of consciousness here, which would be fun to think about in terms of how we evolved to the place where these are the the ways we work, and um, and in fact uh, it may be um, part of um, part of the great crisis of humanity and the earth that we've lost this. Right participatory sense and, and have gone to this disjunctive relationship between our inner experience and what's happening out there.
1: Right. I mean, in, in some ways, um, um, when you think about our, well, I guess the way Parker Paul would talk about that split personality between, and some could see that also between the subject and object and how we make meaning out of the world. Um, and. I would say that there's something about a dialogue that allows the the subject or the ego voice to not be as dominant Yes. that allows for a different kind of discourse. Because if we just work from that perspective, it will limit how we make meaning and how we we take action
2: in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the beautiful things about VTS, visual thinking strategies, uh, is that in a classroom of American kids, uh, some of whom English may be a second language, some of whom have been disadvantaged and not grown up in articulate reading families. And so at the cognitive level, there are these great discrepancies in what they're usually asked to do. Right. But given an image, which is, you know, the visual cortex is one of the first things that develops in the right. brain. Given an image, and asked to respond to the image, everybody's on the same level,
1: and they're hearing each other's voices for the first time. Right. I mean, one of the fun things of seeing this happen is that the the in any group dynamic, not only with young people but even with adults, there's certain inhibitions that come in. There's certain barriers that come into communication and. In this kind of process, some of those fall down. We start listening to each other. So maybe the teacher doesn't have all the answers, or maybe the smartest kid who always raises their hand may be able to learn. From... There was a kid in Petaluma that was this, the smartest kid that knew the answer to everybody, everything, a sixth grader. And at the evaluation at the end of the year, they asked, um, well, what do you think about this? And, and what he said is like, wow, I learned that other people have something to say. <laughs> Which comes back to the whole idea right. of disjunctive uh, cognition and subject, but really the opportunity to learn and um, to listen,
2: it, it makes a big difference. Right. So we've talked about visual thinking strategies. Would you do a Should we see what it is? After we've uh, built so much seven? expectation yeah. now? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Just take a few moments to look at this. So what's going on here? Kind of like she's on
3: trial on some level or other. Mm -hmm.
1: And what do you see that makes you say that she's on trial? She's standing, and the other's are sitting.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Robin, you think that this is some kind of, she's being judged in some way, because yeah. she's standing up well, and other people are sitting
3: On what societal level
1: is probably given by the furniture and stuff around it. Mm-hmm. So you're not sure what, what class they are, but it feels like she's being judged. Thank you. What more can we find? It
5: looks like somebody's taking a photograph or something, that boy went back to it.
4: What's he doing what's in his oh, hand? No, those are I her think. legs. Her legs. Oh, okay. Oh, it looked like he was lifting something That's up so to bad. his
1: face. <laughs> <mate. laughs> okay. So uh, you look at this at first, and it looked like someone was holding a camera, but at further examination, it looked like it might be her leg. Yes, Pauline, what more can we find?
6: It looks like a kind of a bizarre social event that's gone really
1: badly. (laughs) And what do you see that makes you say that it went really badly? (laughs) This is a room with some signs of
6: wealth. It looks like it might be Ames chairs, maybe, or a leather couch and a Mm -hmm. pool table. And the woman to the left is dressed quite formally, wearing a hat in the afternoon, which Mm -hmm. you don't see much anymore woman standing up is dressed as for a cocktail party, but it 's broad mm-hmm. daylight um, she 's been sitting in the chair that 's got its back to us because her jacket's there mm-hmm. um, and it looks like she 's about to well if her hands were tighter i 'd say she 's about to walk out of the room mm-hmm. but her hands are relaxed so it's it 's perplexing
1: so so there's you're wondering about this setting Robin talked about it being a that she's being judged, but you're suggesting that there's something awkward here. You're looking at the environment, saying that to you, you see some signs of wealth maybe designer chairs, leather couch, pool table. Um, a woman who looks dressed nicely, wearing a hat in the middle of the day, specific class, specific periods. And then looking at her, she looks to you like she's dressed for a, a cocktail party. But you're wondering what's going on. It doesn't seem like she's, a, she doesn't seem to you that she's about to leave the room. So you're wondering about what's going on and there's some kind of awkwardness here. Thank you,
2: what more can we find? Yes. Well, to me, she she looks like she moved from her seat to be more centrally located so she could say something. Mm -hmm. And what do you see that makes you say that? Uh, You know, the fact that she moved the fact that she's centrally located, mm-hmm. the fact that she formally positions herself—you mm-hmm. know—in a place that looks somewhat formal, so she's commanding mm-hmm. attention, and uh, you know she doesn't look particularly frightened or anything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, everybody in the room, you know, looks pretty casual—you know, like they're not expecting uh, disaster or anything like that. Right.
1: So, um, and what's your name? Uh, Joel, so Joel, you're kind of you're agreeing with Pauline that maybe this was her chair. You said that the jacket here, And and you feel like she came over here to take a central location, and she's about to make an announcement. She's about to say something. So she's kind of claimed this place because it's in the middle. She came up here to go there. That it doesn't feel like it's a disaster or major drama. There's because they feel like they're casual, but she is good. So, but she's about to say something, and this is kind of like taking the stand of like, I'm going to say something. Thank you. What more can we find? Hold on. Just a second. Yes.
5: Um, Well, I was thinking, it's interesting that no one's talking, and I didn't, I don't think she looks like she's about to talk, because she looks more like she's Mm -hmm. on display or Mm -hmm. letting people look at her, and um, for some reason, showing herself, just, it's not a, posture that's preceding talking in my mind. But I thought I was going to say it looks like no one's talking, which is mm-hmm. strange because usually people don't sit mm-hmm. silently. And... What do you
1: say that What do you say that makes you say that no one's talking? Well,
5: it just looks to me like mm-hmm. the two that we can see aren't talking and the man that's you sitting said? there relaxed. I don't know if that's him in the mirror mm-hmm. or not, if it's a mirror, right, to
1: look mm-hmm. at the bottom, but he doesn't look, it doesn't look like he's talking. Mm-hmm. You know? So... You, you know joel was saying that maybe she was looked like she might be about to say something yeah. but you're you're reflecting on the fact that no one else is, is well i just think she looks, looks like, like
2: she's putting herself on display mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. that body language of her arm you know i'm assuming that the chair with the uh uh piece of cloth over it was initially hers which mm-hmm. may or may not be the case and maybe mm-hmm. missing.
1: So we're we're speculating about whether this, Pauline was saying that maybe it's her jacket and she walked over. You're saying maybe yes, maybe no. And you're adding that you're kind of agreeing with what Robin was saying, that she might be on trial. You say that she's here to be judged or to be looked at. She's on display, that no one else is talking. So you're, you're also wondering about detecting that sense of awkwardness that we've been talking about. Thank you. What more can we find? Yes, sir.
3: So I think that the jacket belongs to the guy sitting next to the jacket. He's not wearing one. That the other guy is. And I think that they're executives at a meeting, and uh, maybe she's a fashion designer, and she's either being considered to be a model, or she's displaying a piece of clothing.
7: Mm-hmm. And
3: I don't think anybody's, they're looking at her. Nobody is, if somebody were talking, they'd be looking at the person <coughs> talking, probably. Mm-hmm. So I think they're looking at her and trying to make a decision about something.
1: Okay, so you're trying to, building on this idea that she's on display, as you were saying, and it's taking to the idea that she might be a model or a designer. No, I don't think she's the designer. I think that she might be,
4: but
8: Mm -hmm. I thought
1: the other woman might be the designer. This woman might be the designer. And she designed what she's wearing, so they're looking at her, evaluating what she's wearing, as if it was a fashion show. And you're saying they're they're not not looking at anyone who's talking. They're just kind of looking at her, kind of like you were saying. And, And you're wondering... Um, maybe she's modeling, right. or they're
3: all considering her t- mm-hmm. to be their
1: model to be their voice mm-hmm. sensitive. Model. Oh, so they might be thinking about not knowing right. what she's wearing, but maybe they're they're that she's being trialed as a model, um, and that this shot kid belongs to mm-hmm. him. Thank you. What more can we find? Yes. I think she's announcing that she's had an affair. What do you see that And <laughs> what do you see that makes you say that?
0: Because she's looking she's not looking at the man. The man is obviously because he's reflected in the mirror this one. there's obviously, so he's shown twice. Mm-hmm. So we're concerned about what his relationship I think the other two are the parents, and they're kind of the and her if parents? You look at it. I think so. Well, maybe his parents. It's but his if you brother. look at it, she instead of she has an air of tension in her body. There's mm-hmm. not, she's not relaxed. Um, mm-hmm. The other two people, the other two older people, are formal, and the husband is obviously his lackadaisical self. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> because she's not, she's not looking at anybody. I think she's mm-hmm. just about to break the news
1: of either an affair or a divorce. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing here is a little bit of a family setting. That these might be parents, either hers or his. That they're a married couple. We've been talking a lot about the relationships between the people in the group. You know, maybe they're she's on trial she's i mean being judged maybe she's a fashion model you're suggesting that it's a family saying you see him twice you're kind of reflecting whether this is a mirror or not you think that maybe this is his reflection yeah. and you think that she is about to announce something of significance right. that she's having an affair that she's having a divorce because it's kind of Joel was talking about that she's about to announce you're looking at her body posture and to you, it looks tense, as if it, so it is something important and is about to happen. her mouth is set too. Her mouth mm-hmm. isn't at all beguiling in any mm-hmm. way. You know, so. so, looking at both her expression and her body posture, you feel like, okay, there is something significant that I'm going to announce, and you thought that it had to do maybe with him. He's kind of relaxed, but he's about to hear that he might be divorced, or yeah. she found alternatives. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. What more can we find? Yes.
4: Um, my immediate reaction was this is a California house, mm-hmm. um, partly because of the brightness of the light mm-hmm. and the eclectic furnishings that suggest some um, <laughs> historic things that might have been brought from another part of the country, mm-hmm. but then the Eames chairs and the, the, the leather sofa. My immediate reaction when I saw it was there's Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs>
5: cultural
1: icon.
4: This one. No, no. This one. <laughs> Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. That mm-hmm. um, she is. Um, she's she's shapely, but she's aging. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there there's a sense as woman of woman as commodity mm-hmm. there, and and the tension I think yes between mm-hmm. the the man and the chair and mm-hmm. I you know. The, the woman with the hat certainly could be a mother. I, I thought the man with the beard was a shrink. <laughs> Definitely looks like the resident psychologist. Mm-hmm. Of the group.
1: So once again, we're kind of focusing on why she's standing the way she's standing and the relationships between the people. Um, you could see the parents, but you're also wondering about what their roles are. Um, he could be a therapist, could be something else, but then looking at this character that we've been talking a lot about, you're making a reference to Mrs. Robinson, uh, the film, which was called The Graduate, the Graduate thank you. <laughs> um, of, you saying an older woman that is still shapely. Um, commodity and, and what do you see that makes you say that women as commodity in a sense?
4: Um, her, her beauty is, is quite stylized. Um, mm-hmm. does not appear to be natural hair color. <laughs> um she's also dressed in a um everybody it appears to be afternoon light and everybody mm-hmm. else is dressed appropriately for for the mm-hmm. day where she is really dressed mm-hmm. um in a like a, a, a satin dress, sleeveless mm-hmm. dress with jewelry and makeup mm-hmm. and dye mm-hmm. hair.
1: So looking at her and thinking about the objectification in the sense of women or women as a commodity, um the fact that she looks to you as an older woman with dyed hair wearing a costume dress what might be in the middle of a California day when the others are maybe not dressed in the same style in, in this context. Um, so it makes you think about, um, about the film in the sense of an older woman whose self-image is one that is um, objectified or the way she colors her hair, she wears jewelry. She tries to maybe fit into that um, idea of a... I'm trying to find the right word. The,
4: well, uh, one sense I got is this is a room of beautiful objects, mm-hmm. and this woman appears to be almost a beautiful object, like the, like mm-hmm. the chair or the sofa or the mm-hmm.
1: ceramic piece. So and there's a sense of that mm-hmm. com, of her being a commodity. Mm-hmm. So when you started, you were talking about placing this potentially in California because of the eclectic nature of the different furnishing. Um, recognizing the, what looked like Eve's chairs a leather couch that were brought and created a space of what we brought maybe from some other place mm-hmm. and that she fits in as if another object in the room. Great, thank you. What more can we find? Yes, Robin.
7: Well, I'm just looking at the um, environment they're in and just from an interior design consideration that the space doesn't seem very well thought out. The, um, pool table is so close up to a sitting area, and that even though they're Eames, looks like Eames chairs that are expensive and well-designed, they're just, the mirror in the back seems just sort of oddly placed, and I see two lamps that may be a pair, but they're not placed. Yeah, that one by him, and then there's one over by the woman in the hat on a table, mm-hmm. they just look like they're just there randomly, and the space above the table where it looks like they're pictures by the man with the beard, mm-hmm. that whole wall space is wide open, mm-hmm. it, and the bookcase is kind of just not consciously arranged, so I just think it's odd. There's a, mm-hmm. a dichotomy there between some sense of caring about the environment, but mm-hmm. then it's just sort of haphazard.
1: Mm-hmm. So you're kind of looking at the the layout of the room and thinking that there's some things here that are not thought out. You were talking about like the eclectic nature of the collection of furniture. You're talking about how they're placed in the room. Um, Pool table being close to the couch with these chairs that might be designer chairs, but they're kind of squished in between the space. Um, Different kinds of lamps, the location of the, the bookshelf kind of crammed where the mirror is, the way that this whole area is spaced. So there's something about the space to you that is either random or not thought out. Thank you, we'll take three more people and then we'll go to so one, two, three, four. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I was, um... I count differently,
6: <laughs> I Can't it, see it that well, but it looks to me like, um... It's an, an an office meeting or some kind of a meeting rather than a family gathering mm-hmm. because they're all sitting in these chairs and there's a couch in the background. No one's sitting on the couch. It's not you know like a, a casual mm-hmm. family gathering. And uh, and definitely they are focused on this this woman. It's
1: so in the middle there. you know back again thinking about what the setting is and what brought these people together and Patricia suggesting that it's could be an office meeting or an office setting. They're all focused on her, but the fact of the collection of the furniture, the fact that there's a leather couch but no one's sitting on it makes you feel like it's a work setting?
6: Or a setting where they're having a meeting rather mm-hmm. than a family that's mm-hmm. together. Which so, just that they're sitting in, in these kind of strange like office chairs mm-hmm. or what look like an office chair from behind rather than mm-hmm. comfortable sort of living room. It's just so you, that the room is sort of not right for, like, mm-hmm. see a family gathering.
1: So it doesn't give you a sense that this is maybe where family lives because of the, the types of chairs and how they're set. So it gives you more a sense of a meeting and not of a family get-together. Great, thank you. What more can you find? Yes, Mike. Um,
9: the haphazard arrangement of furniture that we were, we were talking, I think, mirrors the haphazard arrangement of the people mm-hmm. and how they are emotionally. Because they are not... They, everybody's looking past each other. There's a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. I don't find any relaxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, uh, ri- she's rigid, and she's got very cold light on her. She's almost mm-hmm. drained of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, the man's reflection, his head is disembodied. Which is also part of the theme of mm-hmm. disconnection. Uh, there's another disembodied head in the mirror, which is reiterates mm-hmm. the, this. This, you know, decap, you know, decapitation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the furniture, I think, could be easily be a house. You know, certain people. This mm-hmm. is how you know. Um, this is how this type of furniture they have. Um, also, I find the above the mirror is a very plush uh, painting, probably 17th century, mm-hmm. it is a painting or reproduction, which is wonderfully at odds with everything else. And, you know, it's a bucolic, it's a bucolic mm-hmm. and 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 here you are in a room full of very cold, tense people.
4: Mm-hmm.
9: Um, so
1: there's lots of dissonance. So, taking, building on what a few people have said, you're, act, you're pointing out maybe what you see as a parallel between the dynamics and the room, that this haphazard way that Robin pointed out how the furniture is in a room, the eclectic styles that, what's your name? Susan. That Susan pointed out, you said is reflected also kind of in the dissonance between the people in the room. Um, you're, you're feeling the tension. You see it in in, in her stance, in the fact that there's, disembodied heads, in a sense, you can't see his body, his head is almost decapitated, like it's floating. In her coloring, which is kind of pale, in her posture, um, you're pointing out that the way they are looking, they're not looking at each other. So that there's a disconnection and there's a tension among them, which you said is also happening in the furniture. And then um, you brought our attention up here to what looks to you like a bucolic 17th century. Eighteenth century, an old painting, (laughs) Um, that represents a scene that to you contrasts with what's going on. This feels green and lush, as opposed to what's going on here, which is a room that has tension and dissonance both in the dynamics and in the layout. Did I get you right?
9: Yeah, and I think I can't really see that well in the painting, but it looks like very pink, fleshy Mm fingers, and that's also in contrast to all this cold light.
1: Mm so so another parallel or tension could be looking at the images here and not being able to see and those of you that can see the computer might be able to see it closer but there's some pink coloring here that makes you think that maybe these figures are more lush, um, more warm compared to the the whiteness and the cold here. Thank you. Yes, Erwin i'll i'll take that rigidness and um and up it a little bit i it might be just the coloration on this wall but i can't help but think that the two women are mannequins they look
2: mm-hmm. completely wooden to me and that it almost it's almost as if um you know they're trying out the new living room set. there's someone selling a living room set and here's how it looks with people <laughs> um, and um, it, even even the, even the shrink looks made of wax
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, and the disembodied head
1: also adds to that mm-hmm. um, feeling of objects on display mm-hmm. that even the people here are objects on display mm-hmm. the only other thing that just hit me at one
2: point but I'm seeing everything like this right now is that the two women in black in the middle of this bright light makes me feel like if anything they've just come back from a funeral mm-hmm. yeah,
5: yeah.
1: So, these are mannequins that came back from a funeral. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a cremation. <laughs> um, so, let, let me see if I got, you, you're looking at them. I argue these in the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, we've been talking a lot about her posture, and it seems that it's, so, to you it seems so rigid that it's to the point that it feels artificial as if she's a wooden figure, as if she's a mannequin, that both of these feel like as if it's not a natural setting, as if they were placed there to test this bizarre combination in some furniture. And all the figures, including this one, looks wax-like to you. So there's taking that idea of rigidness that a lot of people have talked about. And then when you you look at them again, the fact that they're both dressed in black the way they are, that makes you think that... um, and maybe the reason they're wearing black is because they came back from an event that requires that like a funeral thank you what more can we find? yes
6: well I was looking at it um, as if it's this controlled very tight moment in time Mm -hmm. um, as a photograph perhaps and that the artist in fact has taken that, that moment and controlled the observer so much by use of the placement of the figures, and also mm-hmm. by the kind of monochromatic tone mm-hmm. to, the, to this, so that there's no bright colors, there's nothing that's getting us off of this moment. It's so focused, and, it, and the arrangement is is almost, um, it's, it's almost like cut in half, which what the painting, mean? or whatever, cut is cut in half by the couch, mm-hmm. bring the line of the couch over, and then there's that stiff woman, and the painting, so that the artist is really controlling our emotions and pointing them to this
1: mm-hmm.
6: thing that's happening between these people.
1: So you're, you're bringing, what's your name? Harriet. So Harriet's bringing the intention of the artist who you call the photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, so or the painter, I don't know what it is. A painter. The, the creator, yeah. the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're thinking about that these characters were Almost compressed into this frame to create that certain tension that we've been talking about. Um, and there's a lot of intention about how they're placed and how they're positioned. The choice of the palette, the colors, creating this kind of monochromatic sense of this kind of coloring, there's nothing that really stands out. There's no real bright colors or things from a very different palette. That makes you focus on this dynamic, and noticing that somewhere there's a it seems to you like there's as if there's a line across here, and then this figure that we've been talking about kind of pops out of it together with this painting. Did I get that right? Yeah. Thank you. We could go on. <laughs>
4: this,
1: yes, this yes. One more last
3: one. little difference going on, which is quite uh, electric and uh, tense. The woman with the hat is a very formal hat, funeral or no, she mm-hmm. might wear it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't can't tell if that's mother daughter,
4: mm-hmm. but
3: if the generational difference shows right up, then mm-hmm. the flowers uh, are almost superfluous. Mm-hmm. That, uh, oh, that, oh, let's, let's brighten up this
1: nothing, or <laughs> we're, we're supposed to have flowers. Here mm-hmm. they are. Mm. So you're thinking about two things one about the generational differences. So this, she seems like an older woman, and you're wondering about. You know, you have an older woman, and a younger woman, it could be mother and daughter, but you're not sure about that. So you find that there's a generation difference between the characters. And then you're looking at these flowers in the middle, and they feel to you as if they're not connected or they don't belong, in the sense that you have a room that maybe might be a little bleak, and we're just going to put some flowers in the middle. It's the
3: thing to do. So it's <laughs> the right thing to do?
1: And there's a very shallow triangle uh,
3: on the woman sitting, standing, and then the man on the
1: right. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're looking at, at yeah, these exactly. three figures and Good. that creates a triangle. So thinking about the composition of how they're placed, kind of going what Harriet was talking about, this horizontal line, you're adding another line here, here that creates a triangle. Something well, short. <laughs> <laughs> it's short. Okay. I just disturbed or wondering. wondering about this
5: ghostly figure in the mirror that is off screen? No, the other on one. The, that's and like, who's mm-hmm. he? And is it outfit. A, a mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, I just, no one's
1: mentioned that, and it just seems like a weird ghostly. So you're, you're noticing something yeah. back here that that looks kind of ghostly, kind of unclear from. It seems, from like, it seems from like a person, but where? Mm-hmm. So i wondering what that role is. We really could go on, <laughs> but we really are going to stop. <laughs> 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 but that was a VTS discussion, and now Wonderful. we can turn this off. Thank you.
2: So, uh, sort of comments, reflections on what, what you just saw, on the experience, Joan.
8: Well, it seemed to me that
2: that there's something about posing the question that
8: was almost inviting dramatic answers that to me felt much more dramatic than that picture mm-hmm. elicited for me. So it made me think about the framing of the question and the and the um, uh, I don't know, just sort of the. It felt very leading, like what do we see here? And and it was it was interesting to me because so many people were talking about the drama and the tension, and I didn't I didn't feel that, and I don't see very well, so I couldn't see the expressions on their faces. But it just looked like mm-hmm. the woman was just saying like, "What can I get you to drink?" And
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> For some people, that's dramatic. <laughs> a quiet so. Moment during the Civil War. <laughs> It's, you know, one day an interesting experience would be is after a discussion like this, have everybody write down what they think the facilitator did. Mm -hmm. Because the question that I asked was only what's going on here. That is the only question that I asked. All the other questions that I asked, that was the only leading question. That's how I opened the conversation. The other questions that I asked were, what do you see that makes you say that? If you made an interpretation, provide evidence. And the final question that I asked was, what more can you find? So there's three questions. That's all the questions that I've asked in this conversation. And you never know where it's going to go. So, And at this point, I've used this photograph a few times, and I'm sure you probably have too. And sometimes it goes drama, and sometimes it doesn't. It's the same piece really changes, even, I think, with the same audience. Like, if we all came back in three months and did it again, I don't know how it's going to lead. Every... Every picture unfolds in a different way, and sometimes, I don't know, depends on what's happening in the world, if you believe in stars or energies or whatever. I I don't know what is the determinant of how it is, but what I do know is that the process itself is not what leads the discussion, because I've seen how the discussion has evolved in different ways, because the, the process itself is very strict. It is very strict, the process itself. All it includes are those three questions, paraphrasing, which is really just an act of clarifying and echoing what someone has said. And we can go into each why these elements are structured this way. So there's three questions, and there's a verbal paraphrasing, there's a visual paraphrasing, which is kind of paraphrasing, you're talking about this woman, so we know which woman we're talking about, you're talking about the light, so we know what we're talking about. And, And basically maintaining a neutral stance, that is the entire method. And that method is made up of a bunch of different pedagogies and that come from a lot of different um, lineages. I mean, the whole questioning is very Socratic in its nature in the sense that Socrates used to guide his students towards a specific understanding by asking questions. Um, the difference here is that we're asking questions without a specific goal in mind. So it does go and wander in different, qu- in different directions. Um, paraphrasing is also an old tool. So a lot of these tools are based in psychology, the psychology of education, different theorists, they're, they're brought together here, but when the teacher gets it, they get it as a very, it fits on a business card. When we used to train educators, we used to give them a business card that says, what's going on here, what do you see that makes you say that, what more can you find, point, paraphrase, and link. That is the entire method. The interesting thing that happened is that by restricting the teacher, who is often perceived as the person with the power in the room, or the person with the authority, by restricting their voice, it allows the voice of the group to come out, however it's going to come out. Now, you know, there is room for the other model here too, right? There is room for the teacher to share knowledge or share their perspective on the world, but in this specific dynamic, Um, the teacher, the facilitator, is very restricted in how they move in the conversation. So they do not affect how the group makes meaning.
2: Yes?
6: Two things struck me. One relates to what you're just talking about, which is that I could feel almost as a physical energy in my body, the, the tension of waiting for you to fall into that other mode. Because you're a strong leader, strong speaker, and I knew that that wasn't what the purpose of this exercise was going to be and yet it, it seemed so built into having somebody in the front of the room with a, with a slide <laughs> up that you were then going to switch into directive information mm-hmm. dump kind of teaching and you never did it, which was a wonderful kind of tension to experience the not happening of that mm-hmm. second part. Thank the you. other thing that struck me a lot is that my daughter um, has been studying art history My own response to going to museums and appreciating art has never been very tutored. It's always Mm -hmm. simply been whatever it was. But she showed me what a formal analysis is. And I'm thinking about the origins of this at Mm -hmm. MoMA. Um, What happened in this room is a really rich formal analysis of what we're seeing up there. And it's so illuminating about how how to interact with something visual. I just really appreciated
1: it. I you know the funny thing is that I'm so used to doing it. So usually when we have a conversation after an image discussion, I would paraphrase the speaker and just reflect back. And I'm trying not to do that once again, but um <laughs> I'm biting my tongue. But it's the relationships of museums to VTS is interesting because the the, the museum staff are often people who are highly engaged with the art, or at least motivated, often with a strong background in the arts. So they often have art history degrees, they've studied art, they've looked at a lot of art, so they're very experienced, so their meaning-making strategies are shaped by their life experience. Most of the people who come through the doors of the museum, I would say 90%, have not even remotely that level of expertise. So their meaning-making strategies are different, which is often why some people go to the museum and they don't engage in the way the museum thinks they should. Now, you know, I always feel when I talk about the fact that MoMA found out that they were not teaching what they thought, that people were not learning what they thought they were teaching, it doesn't mean that people got nothing out of that museum visit, right? They did get something out of it. They just didn't get what MoMA thought they should get which was the art historical context of the paintings, right? Museums are structured that way. They're often structured by periods and genres or specific artists. When a museum does it differently, you, you're surprised. When, um, when the Tate Modern opened in London, the way they curated the galleries was different. It was by themes. So they had a room that was landscapes. And it was landscapes throughout history in different mediums, different artists from all over the world. And another room was portraits. So you'd have a New Guinea mask together with a Robert Longo uh, photograph, together with a Cubist uh, picture by Picasso. They're all portraits, which is a different way to curate, which is actually based on housing, closer to how maybe beginner viewers look at art. But that most c- people that work at museums think about it through this very formal way, which is a, is a valid, recognized way, which is, which is fantastic. It's just not how most people look at art. And so sometimes when an expert talks about the piece, the audience has no idea where that came from, or they don't have maybe the foundation to understand everything. They understand some of it, but it doesn't stick because it's not sticking to a knowledge foundation. And what we did now was another kind of formal analysis that we did look at a lot of things. So if I I could summarize this, is that we, you know, we looked at the interaction in this photograph. We looked at the composition. We looked at at the lighting. We looked at the arrangement. We looked at the possibility of staging. I mean, I could paraphrase this in art speak in a sense, but it
2: did actually sit more from our
1: experiences.
2: Let's just take a couple more comments because... um... We want to get on with the rest of the conversation, and the purpose of this was the demonstration of the method. Steve Heilig, you had a comment? Oh, I was just, you know, you were so good at
9: being neutral, I want you to tell us the truth about what was going on
1: <laughs> I can tell you so many truths about this. This, this woman has been, um, um, yes, she was, um, she, <laughs> she has been a model many times. She was someone to pitch an idea to wealthy investors. She has been a prostitute being examined for a porn film. She has been many different things the way people have seen it. But what's interesting is that need for the right answer at the end. So it's like the drive. That was Harriet's first thing. Like I stopped and said, okay, what's really going on here? Um, which, well, you know, we could, It, it it's a tension that, Usually, I I, I let hang, but since within this setting, as we talk about meaning-making strategies and how we make meaning out of art, um, the title is called The Meeting with My In-Laws by an artist named Jessica Todd Harper, and she has a whole series about it. That was her standing up. Um, Are you feeling sorry for her now? (laughs) But you can see how that shapes the conversation in a specific way. Now, if we will work with a, you know, of people that have experience in the art, I could have opened with the title and say, here's a a photograph by Jessica Todd Harper, I can give a little bit of a bio, here's the title, let's talk about it in that open way. With art historians or people with experience in the art, they could have that conversation. The difference with beginning viewers, which most of the population is, um, that it shapes their perception of the art. It really directs it into a different direction, which in many settings is fine, especially in a museum setting, if you're there to learn about the artist and that is your goal and that's the goal of the museum. If our goal is about building conversation or building those analytical skills that we could reflect on, which we haven't talked about, but those evidentiary reasoning, critical thinking, observations, detailed observations, speculations, predictions, which is the kind of skills you need to make meaning out of complex issues, the name of the piece at that point becomes an obstacle to making meaning in this open way. So it depends what your goal are. So with you, I'm not, you know, I can't teach you critical thinking in, in an hour. <laughs> and I want you to understand the, the method. So, uh, but you, normally if I was working with a group over time, I would hold back on that information unless someone wanted and then came up to me afterwards and asked me, and, you know, I'm happy to share. But you can imagine I would say, okay. Um, this is called meeting with my in-laws. What's going on in this picture? <laughs> <laughs> now, with some people that would that would be fine. You could still have a conversation because you could talk about composition and lighting and intention and artist perspective and point of view but it would have definitely not allowed for
2: a lot of the other interpretations. Thank you. So, can we, forgive me, but I'd like to move on now just because um, uh, there's a lot of other questions I'd like to ask Oran. So, Oran, um, I mentioned at the start that that you are doing at least two things at Commonweal. You're our new chief strategies officer. It's a position we've never had before. And you're going to develop a new program that in some sense emerges from this work with visual thinking strategies. So let's start with the first. Several people in the audience asked, uh, including Commonweal staff, said... Uh, <laughs> I want to know what Chief Strategies Officer means, so what does Chief Strategies Officer mean? Do you think we should tell them? Um, The
1: the title, forget the title for a moment, Um, though the title has a reason behind it. I mean, what some of the reasons, Michael and I have had conversations for a long time before I joined the the Commonweal team. exploring really where we are and where Commonweal might be going. Um, The world around this is changing, the the staff is changing and might be changing more. Um, So as we look from here ahead, we know where Commonweal came from. As we look ahead, this is kind of exploring some of the, I'm trying to use the word strategies, what are the strategies for the future? But really looking ahead and seeing where an organization might, like Commonweal might go. What are the possibilities that are out there? What are the things that we need to do today to think about how we'll move into the future? And not in the sense of developing a strategic plan, which some of you might have heard the term. It's definitely not about strategic planning. It's really about exploring where we are and what other possibilities that this organization is going and potentially being intentional about it. But I think it's going to – I mean, it's. I've been here for – four months. I've been in touch with the organization for a year and a half, and I'm still learning new things almost every day. You know, every idea that comes up, it feels like, oh yeah, we thought about that 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago. This organization with a lot of history that has a lot of accomplishments, that has done a lot, not only in Bellinas and West Marin in California, but around the world, and really making a significant impact on a lot of different movements. So trying to grasp the depth and the scope of Commonweal is probably the first stage. And a lot of the, I've had conversations with a lot of you here in the room, is trying to pull that together and see what, are, might, might, what might be some of the ways and the possibilities that might open up for Commonweal. Not to mention that the world is different. You know, you look at 1975 when you came out here, and now we're 40 years later, the way people communicate, the economic model that we're living in, not to mention the environmental hazards that are going around. I mean, the world has shifted. So it's a good idea to start reflecting on how does an organization fit into that world.
2: So what drew you to Commonwealth? Why did you decide to accept my uh, invitation to join us? Um, it? It, it, took, it took some time.
1: We, we, we met for about a year often going with Michael on his famous walks along the cliffs, um, which is how staff meetings happen here, uh, is walking in the area and thinking about where the organization is, what the work is. um, And the more our conversations went deeper, the more amazed I was at the possibilities here. I mean to me it's exciting that a place like this exists and there are so many different levels that I see this happening. One is, um, well, the location is to die for it. <laughs> I mean, this is, has to be one of the most beautiful places around. Um, so just the idea, I mean, we, I've been coming to Bolinas since I moved to the Bay Area in the 80s, so there's that. But uh, a lot more than that is the kind of work the Commonweal does, the kind of questions that this organization asks, uh, which to me are the very real Questions and they're not narrow; they're not limited in scope. I mean, the fact that there's thirteen different, twelve different programs and touching so many different types of populations and causes, ranging from, you know, the 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 guy who writes most of the policies about juvenile justice in the state of California runs a program at Common Real. or um, a lot of you know Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who has. We can say that she changed the field of medicine. I think Mm -hmm. we could say that. I mean, and there's some program directors here. I mean, the work that is happening here is at an international level that is making a significant change. And in a lot of the, in my previous positions in the world, especially before VTS, I was interested in ways that you can actually change the world in a systematic and meaningful way. So when I ran a youth center in San Francisco, which I did for almost eight years. We serve about 500 young people a year, but that was out of a population of 20,000 young people. So we could intervene with those 500 young people, and I'm still supportive of this organization, and I believe in their work, but I always ask my the question of how do you make a systematic shift? How do you change a whole system so all the 20,000 young people, so there's not 5,009 profits, each of them working with 500 kids, which may be a a relevant model, but I was interested in more in systematic change and large-scale change. What VTS provided was a, a window into changing the educational system, because when you introduce this tool to teachers, it changes how they teach, and it can change the dynamics of a school, and... It's easy to teach. I mean, I just boiled down to a business card, the core elements. It is a lot harder than that. It takes years to, to teach it. And the system doesn't want to change. But it was definitely a strategy that you could create a systematic shift. And a lot of the stuff here at Commonweal does the same kind of thing. It thinks about things in a very broad perspective in a in an ecological perspective, not in necessarily ecological, meaning environmental, but in a systematic way. So that was part of it.
2: Let's talk about your uh, intention uh, to create a new program at Commonwealth that builds on visual thinking strategies. And this is very uh, intriguing to me. And I know you're thinking about it. But rather than me trying to describe what I understand of what you're intending, what are you seeking to create?
1: Well, I think one of the questions that I have is how, how do we deal with complex issues? So when we talk around the issue of climate change, or we talk about racism, or we talk about violence, these are complex issues that have a lot of different nodes. And um, they're hard to access. And you know, feel like you can maybe solve one little one, but then two more pop up on the other side. Um, And they're hard to wrap your mind around them. I mean, philanthropists have tried to do this, government entities, nonprofits, even us as individuals, we think about climate. What can I do in terms of climate change? It's like, well, I'll buy a Prius and solve the problem. So we try to access it in one way. The Prius is actually an interesting example. You buy a Prius, but then what are you going to do with the batteries, right? There's like, you've solved one, another one pops up. And it feels it's like, you know, oh, we'll recycle plastics. Oh, but we don't have anything to do with the plastic, so we just create a landfill full of plastic. I mean, it feels none of that is bad intentions. These are just very complex issues that have a lot of different layers. And I think our minds are not necessarily wired to deal with those kind of questions. Now, a lot of people can, but I'm wondering if there might be ways or tools that we can help in understanding that. And I think the program that I would like to create a common wheel is using something that's influenced by this process, which is about taking an ambiguous, complex source material. We took that image. And there's other images that we use, lots of different kinds of paintings and and reliefs, and photographs, um, and seeing that if we can create access to a complex, ambiguous piece of art, can those skills that we develop through that then be used to deal with more complex issues? Or maybe the methodology of the facilitation can be transferred? So that when we have a complex issue, is this a way that we can conduct a conversation? Or can we? we wire the brain in some ways. I mean, and that is kind of my question here. And, you know, it's, if we can think about how the art allows us to think in different ways and we can share that, that might be a source of a systematic change. Not to mention that if there was a way to use this, let's say, with, with foundations or other nonprofits as a way of broadening how we think, it might improve, you know, Policies or decisions about funding or whatever decision-making body is making their decisions, if they can start thinking in those more complex, systematic ways. I'll, yeah.
2: Well, one, and I want to dwell on this for a few minutes because, um, first of all, I found it really interesting. But secondly, I think although it may seem kind of crazy uh, at the outset to people, I mean, what what does looking at an image together do for what are called wicked problems? Mm -hmm. And and by the way, the the term wicked problems, we were talking about this before, um, was created by several people, but one of them was uh, Josh Churchman's father. What was his first name? Uh, West Churchman? West, West. Uh, C. West Churchman, I believe, Right. right. So C. West Churchman was, actually, I think he heard it somewhere else, Mm -hmm. but he was a management philosopher kind of guy, and he was one of the first people to talk Mm -hmm. about wicked problems, which have a a formal meaning, that they they are problems that are endlessly complex, that there's not a simple solution to, and most of the problems that you're saying that we face today are wicked problems, problems, whether it's the Middle East or whether it's climate change or toxic chemicals or... You know, you name it. Um, You know, the arms race. These are wicked problems, right? And so, um, they don't have a logical, simple solution. Right.
1: There's no yes or no answer. There's
2: no yes or no answer. Better and worse. And moreover, not only at a global level, but in an organization or in a group of organizations trying to work together, or in our own lives, many of the challenges we face are wicked problems, and there's no obvious solution. So when you talked about the way in which this kind of thing bypasses the cerebral cortex and engages other parts of the brain, either from a neuroscience point of view or from an archetypal psychology soul analysis, something different is going on, right? And so you create an environment, and let's say you've got a group of people that need to work together on something. You create an environment in which they are able to function using other parts of the brain. Right. So that's a big deal. It is. Yeah. And you can
1: sense when it's happening. Right. You, know, right. you sense when a group comes together and they're creating an intelligence. Right. You know, you, sometimes when you go to meetings, you feel like okay, we compromised on a solution. Or we've done we've done a brainstorming process and look, we came to something that we all agree on. But everybody leaves the room feeling mm-hmm. like my idea was actually better and most likely it was Mm -hmm. right but in the brainstorming process at least a traditional one that was I think developed sometimes in the 60s um, the process is structured that it's a safe environment say whatever you want and then we'll find something that will average out what we think Um, and that often tends to lower the quality of that decision now when you're engaged in a different kind of processes and I'm sure a lot of you have been in the setting where we felt we built on each other, we listened to each other, it was a constructive process that created a group intelligence, and you left with the feeling that the decision that we came to was actually smarter than my own decision or smarter than the conversation that we had. And often that's how the conversations, often like the conversations about a painting I hear this all the time as I show a painting and, and at the end when we debrief it, someone says, you know what, if I saw that at a museum, I would not spend, I wouldn't even look at it or I would spend two seconds at it or I hated it. Or, you know, when I first looked at it, I'm like, why is he putting that up on the wall? And at the end of the conversation, there's a sense of enlightenment. There's a sense that we learned something new, that it felt like a rich experience. And I think those are parallel places that we were able to, to make meaning in a different way that didn't lower the conversation but raised it. And I think that comes partially out of being able to engage with different parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. I mean I'm sure that if a neuroscientist could test our brains, and, and this is, there's a lot of research going in now into the uh, into the brain and the mind and the art and education. And I think those are some of the things that we're starting to see.
2: Right. So one of the things we've started doing at Commonweal, which uh, uh, you are enthusiastic about, is that we've started doing a gathering that we call the Fall Gathering, uh, which is a gathering um, based on principles not unlike this. Right. And it comes out of work by Rick Ingrassi and his partner and wife Peggy Taylor and Peggy's work uh, partner Charlie Murphy uh, up on Whidbey Island uh, off of Seattle and Charlie and Peggy have been working with Youth Development internationally for years using something not unlike this, uh, which they call creative community. And what creative community involves is typically using uh, theater improv techniques Mm -hmm. to get a group of young people to reach the soul level and uh, become bonded together in a remarkably short period of time and, and Finding within themselves for the first time really for many of the children for the first time adolescents, their voices mm-hmm. In ways that change their lives in really dramatic ways. So what What Rick Ingrassi did with this over the last 25 years is he started something uh, up on Cortez Island at Hollyhock Conference Center called the summer gathering where he brought people together and used these same techniques mm-hmm to bond a group of adults together. And instead of a conference where you're all trying to solve a single problem, even a wicked problem, uh, instead of trying to create a problem, he's basically just throwing a party. But a party that brings people in, in a way that they bond together, and then what it depends on in that instance is not a shared solution Mm -hmm. to a problem, but let a thousand flowers bloom, so that all kinds of interactions become possible and dozens of projects mm-hmm. move forward and everybody is changed by the process right. so that you go home with a sense of having, and normally at a conference there's all this boring stuff that goes on and then the time in the corridors and meals is where you really feel something going on. If you flip the classroom and if you create a situation where most of the time is the experience of meals and corridors, and but you you know you create this creative engagement, a whole different right. kind of thing takes place and I think that's the
1: I think that Rick caught on to it twenty five years ago by changing the dynamic of the interaction right. out of a frontal presentation or a very structured conversation to use these strategies that in his case are impro- um, inspired by theater, Mm -hmm. he changed the dynamics. You're seeing that at other conferences as well, Mm -hmm. and even in public education. So the idea of the flipped classroom comes from public education, what they're saying. Mm -hmm. It was driven by technology, actually. Teachers were saying, well, in the old days, I would come and give you all the information. So I will tell you about the history of the Civil War, and I'll maybe make it interesting for you, but I'll give you all the content. And then your homework will be is go home and write down Why did such and such happen? So you would do the analysis at home as your homework. You would write the essay and submit it. The flipped classroom in public education means, okay, we're going to do it the other way around. You're going to go home and you're going to go on Google or you're going to go on your computer or you're going to read the book or you're going to watch the video. You're going to gather the information at home. Then you're going to come to school. Instead of answering the why question at home, you'll answer it at school. And that, that's, it's been a whole movement in education at conferences. I've seen this with the idea of the open conference, the open resource, where there's conferences you can go to now and there's no workshops listed ahead of time. It's like, okay, you come, you tell us what you want to do, you'll put it on the wall and you join. In a sense, what Rick has done is he's done that in a structured way and driven it all the way. Because I think that he's thinking about how people interact and how that structured interaction in the traditional system might limit creativity in how we think and the way he does it does the opposite. And even for me who, um, I'm not uh, the biggest extrovert, right? So when there's a theater production, I'm not the one who jumps out in front and I can talk like this in front of a group, but if someone is asking me to do that freeze exercise, that's not gonna be me. Mm -hmm. But uh, (laughs) I go to these, I sit in the back. (laughs) But nonetheless, I felt the change too. I felt that the group really comes together at these gatherings and there's a lot of creativity and new ways of thinking. Right. You know, I'm really excited that it's gonna be, be happening here because it's happening, it's moving south, right? It started in Vancouver, then it moved to Washington State, skipped over Oregon and it came here. Um, and to think about how that influences dynamics and thinking about ideas, and it kind of depends you know, who's there, but it's an opportunity to take these wicked problems and access this from different points.
2: Mm -hmm. Access the wicked problems in different points. And again, what I would add to that is that even if you're not addressing a single wicked problem, the potential for uh, personal evolution and growth, uh, for stimulating creativity in all of the people there for bonding together a community of engagement Mm -hmm. where people now are friends and, I mean, connected so that, you know, you can reach out to somebody that you didn't know and say, you know, working on this, what do you think? And Mm -hmm. all kinds of new opportunities, you know, come up. In other words, a lot of the wicked problems we're not going to solve. So we're going to have to live with them. And so, you know, how do we live with them? And one of the things that helps you live with wicked problems is bonded communities of people mm-hmm. that you trust. And,
1: and the other thing is not to try and think about them in a reductivist way. Right. You don't try and make them very small so that you can fix it with a patch. Right. But you're allowed to live with that ambiguity and you're allowed to live in a situation where... You don't know all the answers or there can be many answers, Exactly, which is not, it's a tension that's hard to live in. I mean, this world sends a message that there's a right answer, right? The first instinct after the image discussion was, what did the artist mean and what was the title? What was the right answer? It's hard to live with that ambiguity. And with the painting, you know, we can share that information and continue the conversation, but with, sometimes I feel that, you know, I'm in a conversation, it's like, well, we're going to stop climate change by, and then fill in the blank. It, it's not going to work that way. It's never simple. You know, the whole idea is like, we are stop coal production, and that will solve the problem, because coal contributes 50% of the of the pollution in the world. I don't remember the numbers. But it's not that simple, because third world countries rely on that and have no other options. So if they were to call, cut down coal production, they're their economic growth would be hindered significantly. And who are we who polluted the world for the last 200 years to say, you may not go there because you're polluting the world? Mm-hmm. Right? And I understand why we're saying it, but it's not a simple answer. I mean, what is the choice here? Mm-hmm. So it's living with that ambiguity, living with the fact that there's a lot of right answers, living that there might be some answers that we don't like, or how do we live with these wicked problems? Exactly.
2: You know, there's so many directions we could go, but I think what I'd really like to do is come back to the group now and just uh, open it up for questions, comments, reflections. I think the one thing I would say is that um, in the year and a half that Oren and I have been having conversations and in the uh, the four or five months that Oren has been here, it's been a total delight for the staff of Commonweal uh, uh, working with Oren. and um, it, it. I. I just. Um, it is so refreshing for me personally to have a, a thought partner and a strategic partner of this quality um, in the community, and um, it's perfectly obvious. I've I've been here for forty years. In my 71st year, I look forward to continuing to contribute for a long time. But one of the great things that's happening here is that we have um, a whole community of younger leaders emerging here. Um, People like our Managing Director Arlene Alsman and our uh, Chief Financial Officer Vanessa Marcotte and there are a whole set of younger staff leaders that I could mention because the program directors are where the action is at Commonweal. The rest of us support the program directors. Having Oren join us um, is both a joy and a relief for me personally uh, yeah. because I have a sense that um, I'm working with a partner um, who. Um, can do a great deal to chart the future of our community. So um, I just want to say that. Um, so thoughts, reflections, yes, Stuart. Orin, you talked um, a little bit about
0: methodology when we were showing the thing of point, paraphrase, and link. Mm-hmm. And is that part of visual thinking strategies? And is that a three-part? Is that a three-part um, model that we could use for other or to? Promote a visual thinking strategy, and I wonder if you can explain
1: that a little bit, Those are three pedagogies that we use with, with VTS. And another way to call it, so pointing is a kind of visual paraphrasing. Paraphrasing would be a verbal paraphrasing. And linking, the idea behind that is connecting different ideas. Because part of what happens in this process is that we make our thinking process transparent. So you're building on what someone else is saying. So I, usually I remember the whole conversation and I could track back exactly what different people said. So when Robin was saying how the room was uh, seemed in disarray and that the furniture seemed random, Mike then said, And that reflects how the people interact with each other, that I also see that kind of lack of connection that's in the furniture to the lack of connection in the people. So in the paraphrasing, I would say, Mike is building on Robin's idea. And what that does, that pulls us to the realm of metacognition. It makes us reflect on the process that we're going through, which is a form of critical thinking, because it helps us understand how do we construct ideas, where do they come from? So, these are very basic strategies, um, a lot of them are based on theories, so the idea of linking comes out of Vygotsky's work in in, um, in psychology, talking about the process of scaffolding and how language creates thought and thought creates language. Um, so a lot of these strategies or pedagogies are based in, come from different research and from different time periods. So. All these br- come together, bring build what VTS is, and it's they're not hard to learn; they're hard to practice. So I could tell you what they are.
0: Yeah, but um, okay. So let's let's take a wicked problem like mm-hmm. global warming,
3: right?
1: Is
0: there a way to look at global warming with these three processes and kind of break it open, make it, you know, mm-hmm. bigger to kind of like have some kind of analysis, but not get caught in a, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a just kind of like predictable movement. Is there, I mean,
1: do we point to global warming? I sure hope so. I mean, that's kind of what I'm, I'm, I believe is the case. And, and this is the year that we're going to be studying that. Um, VTS has been used mostly in school settings, you know, public schools, college, and museum settings. And I want to take that outside of that realm, use other forms of art, maybe add a few other forms of facilitation, not sh- change the core of it, and see, can we use this with more complex issues? And um, I, I think the answer is yes. I think that if VTS builds metacognition, if through the arts we can develop new ways of thinking, we, cannot, we can do it also on complex issues. So let's say a, a conversation about climate change. If there was a neutral facilitator who would point out how, who would just link and paraphrase, that might make our thinking transparent. It's like, why are we stuck on this? Why every time we talk about climate change, we come to this conclusion that nuclear power is bad. Every time we talk about it, maybe there's other ways to look at it. I mean, I don't know the answer, but the process opens the options. So it, doesn't, it, it prevents it from being stuck in a sense. So I think the pointing, the paraphrasing, are ways to draw other ideas, to create, to live with the ambiguity, not to feel like we have to nail it. And the, the, you know, the wicked problem, it was developed in the social sciences I think it was, I forget the name of this the, the social scientist that, that did it, um, and, and one of the things that he he talks about is that there are no solutions to wicked problems. There's only solution to easy problems or non-wicked problems. Like, there are very complex, you'd like take the issue of gay marriage, you know, that is, it's a complex problem, but I don't know if I would call it a wicked problem, and it's been almost solved in 20 years. Now, homophobia and all the other things that go along with it, that might take another week or two. But <laughs> but um, it, it's it's not in the same way as climate change that has all these different levels and all these different interactions. And we can see how we're struggling with the solution to climate change is not how we struggle to the solution with, with gay marriage. So, um, so it requires almost a different way of thinking. And I do think that this way of thinking and this kind of conversation, this kind of process, allows us at least to grasp what it is. Yes.
4: What, <clears throat> I, I really hope that's true. Me too. <laughs> what, what's your image? I mean, there's, we could all look at this um, visual image mm-hmm. and we could say that is in there. And mm-hmm. so what do you use with the example of climate change that well, is not
1: yeah. politically loaded? So this is what we're looking at right now is exactly how to do this. So we know that how it works within classrooms, but classrooms have the benefit that the teacher is with them every day. So they have an opportunity to keep on drill these skills and have them develop over time. Even in a college setting, you at least see them on a regular basis so that you can kind of learn these skills and then you will just use them in other environments. And we, I know that. I mean, I see that with my kids. I see it with schools where students will use these strategies in other subject areas, so they do transfer them, and Hausen, the the psychologist behind VTS, has studied this and was able to prove how these are transferred from one area to the other, which is one of the hardest things that I know of, and a lot of people challenge her on that because it's hard to prove transfer of skills from one subject area to the other, and we can go into her study, or I could actually send you to her study and you can read it. So the, que- so the question is, so since we know it develops that kind of conversation, how do we do it? So there's a few ways that we've been trying. One is by having VTS integrated, let's say in a group that comes together for a day or two. And you start the conversation with discussions about art, not necessarily about climate change, right? We can use this one or, or different kinds of paintings. And then have that be a theme throughout the the retreats that people keep echoing those questions. We ask each other for evidence. We ask each other for, for elaborated observation. We use those strategies in other conversations so that the conversations don't get stuck or that they don't reach automatically a conclusion or we don't end up in that brainstorming setting where we end up with the lowest common denominator in terms of answers. So that's one way that we're doing about it. Another way that we might be experimenting with, is there a way to develop images or visual icons around the subject that we're talking about so they almost become the source for the conversation so that we can actually, if if let's say we have a brief kind of like here's what we're going to talk about and that use that as a way to create an image, an icon, then the VTS processes around this visual source material which makes sense with the whole archetypal psychology too, how it resonates differently. Within you. So that is another way. A third way is, as you pointed out, is maybe find images that relate to the topic at hand. So if we're having a conversation about healthcare in the US, which is a wicked problem, um, maybe one of the images that we look at is um, one of the images that I've used is a demonstration in an impoverished community against healthcare and just project that on. And you can see, I mean, they're holding signs about what they think and you see the community that you live in and you start that conversation. And the facilitator maintains that same stance. You stick to those pedagogies and then you let the conversation emerge.
2: I mean, one of the things that happens is that you change who's in the room because who's showing up? You know, in other words, we come into the room for a meeting. Let's say it's a Mm three-day meeting to think about climate change strategies, and people come in with a whole cognitive, scientific, ego structure, turf, a whole set of very, very strong things. If you do this together, you discover each other in completely different ways and build forms of trust that make it possible to take creative risk because a lot of the creative community work is a uh, that Rick and and Peggy Taylor and Charlie Murphy do is to introduce creative risk first of all in very small increments like you know here's colored pens color your name card you know and then when you introduce yourself at the beginning of the meeting uh, you know your name where you're from your title and so on and then pantomime something you like to do so people do this like a book or surfing or something but What happens is that, and then the the creative risks are gradated. So over several days, the risks get bigger and bigger, and pretty soon they're totally outrageous. And you have these amazing things going on, and everybody's just falling apart with laughter. And so what happens is that the whole dynamic in the room changes. And then when you have a conversation about a wicked problem, having changed who's in the room and the relationship between them, then the power dynamic shifts. The power dynamic shifts because now people are seeing each other, in some sense, at a soul level, as well as with their official hats on. And the official hats have a totally different relationship than the, the soul connections. So it, it is very powerful. And, and you can see, I mean, at one level it's very simple for Oren to describe this, but you can also see he's a master at it. Right? And so if you do this work with people who are masters at the creation of creative community, then transformation is remarkable and it profoundly affects what's possible in the room. And the, the,
1: the critical point there about allowing your voice to come out with less ego yeah. is what allows other people to come in. And the other thing is that it also allows you to think about your previous knowledge in the world and what it is that you're bringing into the conversation. This, um, one of the experiences that I had, uh, I've been working with this group called BTS at the Edges for the last three years. And last year, um, following Philip Yenowen example, he brought the Gettysburg Address. And we projected the text onto the wall. Not, you know, just the basic text on a Word document. And did exactly the same process on the Gettysburg Address. And this was a group of people from a lot of different fields. and the conversation about it was remarkable, because it was rediscovering not only this text and the importance of it, but also their connection to the to the country, which was interesting. This was a group of you know people have issues around patriotism and their connection to the to the land and to this country, and you know you talk like that and People are seeing a big flag waving, and you can go further down that road as where you want to go. Um, So there were preconceptions around what is patriotism, and what is it to be an American, and what is it to live here, and do I have to wear a red, white, and blue pin everywhere I go? People had feelings and knowledge around that. But after we talked about the Gettysburg Address, you saw that shift happen in the room and how they think about it. And I think it, I mean, for me at least, it helped me think about what does it mean to be an American. Just out of having this conversation to allow us to hear each other and build us each other, kind of take our ego, our preconceptions, what we think we know about the world, allow them to be on the side for a moment so that we can engage in this type of conversation.
3: Have you worked with uh, much with uh, cross-cultural groups all together, say, perhaps at the same age, but where there's a lot of different cultures mixing, uh, where there are different feelings about, for instance, the body. I've, for worked with people, uh, with Mexican-American uh, uh, farm workers who couldn't speak English. I'm doing body work on the parents, but I can't speak their language, so I get there. They break the whole families. So the teacher, I mean, the translator turns out to be the teenager who is flushing red with shame talking about... What his parents are saying about their own bodies, mm-hmm. but we had to get through that by looking at the larger uh, picture, which was they wanted their parents to be well and be able to work. But have you had that sort
1: of? Uh, You'd have me blushing if I had to talk about my parents' body. <laughs> <laughs> um, that it's hard to find a public school in urban America that doesn't have diversity. Um, I mean, and. VTS is in New York, in San Francisco. I mean, in area. so yes, that has happened. Um, and what I find that's interesting is that because the facilitator is restricted in what they do, and they do not, they provide a neutral feedback to everybody. Everybody suddenly has a voice, regardless of how much English you speak. If it's an English-speaking class, people do it in Spanish too. Um, And common feedback is that students who do not normally participate engage in this conversation because the risk is a lot less, right? We're in a place that there could be a lot of right answers, which I think is also true with wicked problems. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. So if you create that kind of environment, you don't get locked into one right answer because there is no one right answer to any of those complex issues. There have to be a lot of different answers and there has to be a way to get those right answers. And you have to get from everybody in the room because the fact that someone is an introvert does not mean they're not smart. You know, there's this thing in this culture and it's true in Israel too that teachers often think that the ones who raise their hands and participate a lot are probably smarter than the ones that aren't raising their hands because If they're not raising their hands, obviously they have nothing to say. Even if the test scores say that they're just as smart, right? So you measure someone's intelligence based on their engagement. That's not true, right? Those of you that aren't the kinds that raise your hands or are introverts know that that's a fact. Um, But even those in VTS conversations, those perspectives come up. And you have to build an environment where someone would feel comfortable. And sometimes it takes a while. It's sometimes, you know, you work with a group, it could take hours. We just did one discussion, but sometimes you have to do three discussions, or sometimes teachers will work with their classroom for months until everybody participates. But usually the level of participation off the bat is very high, and by the end of the year, everybody's voices come in regardless of where they're coming from. And I've even seen kids translate for each other. Mm-hmm. So someone who's a recent immigrant would say something, and the kid who's next to them, or they would just say one word just as a way to participate. Like they notice something and they would go up and point, you know, chair. That's maybe the English that they have, but they're still participating in the conversation. I mean, you can imagine how this would be as a language teaching strategy, which I'm sure, I'm hoping that BTS organization that I used to work with until, with Robin, until almost a year ago now, Mm -hmm. these are the kind of things that they're working on, is can this be used as a tool to develop language? And I I mean, that one's an easy one in my mind.
2: Let's just take a couple of last comments because we're close to the hour. Any further thoughts, reflections that anyone has? Yes, Joan.
8: Um, I just wonder, is it a challenge for Commonweal in terms of using this methodology? Is part of the challenge just getting a, a very diverse group of people who, who aren't all in agreement with each other, let's say, about climate change or whatever it is? together?
1: Like, is that challenging for you? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, how do you reach a broad? Well, it makes it a lot easier when we all agree with each other. (laughs) 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 Um, I I think those are the kind of questions that we're asking, right? So this program is just starting. So we're asking a lot of how are we going to do it? Who's going to be at the table? What is the type of conversations? You know, where are we going with it? These are a lot of the questions that we're asking. Um, I, I find that even within a group that has maybe shared values, like, you know, the, the winter gatherings, um, most of the people come from the same broad cultural, but there's not going to be someone who's like very conservative at these events. I think mean, there might be, but I had to not hear them when I was there and there were over a hundred people and everybody talked. Um, but even within those groups, they're not uniform. And when you start digging, you see that there's fundamental differences in how they see the world. And once you get over maybe some of the inhibitions to true engagement, that their real voices come out, there's a lot more diversity. That said, I also think that bringing, if, you know, if we'll see how this evolves, but I think it would make sense to bring in different people with different voices to the conversation. So you could have maybe someone who, is not aligned that climate change is even happening you know there there are those voices that say that climate change is just another regular shift in environmental patterns that happens every few hundred years it'd be interesting to have those people as part of the conversation too we haven't tested it yet i don't know we haven't figured out exactly how this is going to be used um yet to really address those wicked problems on that kind of level but i think that's a that that would be a very interesting question i mean if You know, I would love to take this into the the government, the political realm, because you do have different opinions there. And having people think about, where do my ideas come from? Why do I believe it? You know, you know, what book am I basing it on? Am I basing it on, you know, the origin of species or the Bible? They're both books, you know, and they both have their own credibility. So at least we acknowledge where our ideas are coming from. That's why the idea of metacognition is so critical. So I could imagine using this in that kind of setting would be really interesting. Or you take, you know, in philanthropy, take family foundations. The fact that you're related to each other doesn't mean you think the same. You know, school boards, there's a lot of opinions there. So it would be, I would like to see this tool in those kind of environments. Um, How exactly that's going to manifest, I don't know yet. But even in groups of people with shared values, you would still see a lot of different perspectives. And I think the danger with the shared values is you get stuck with a specific idea. It's like, okay, this is how we're going to solve the problem. That's that reductionist approach. You know, just say no to drugs and you'll be okay. That is, I mean, this is, that's a lot of time comes out of a group coming to someone. It's like, how are we going to solve this problem? It's like, well, the problem of drugs is is a wicked problem. (laughs) You know, there's economical and racial and there are a lot of different variables that come in. So... And they're solved by a group of people who share values and share perspectives. So I think even in those environments, if you could avoid the reductivist approach,
2: you'd be just as affected. Before we close, um, Oren, I would love to ask you to introduce your husband, Erwin Keller. And we're honored to have Erwin here. Would you say a few words about Irwin? <laughs> um,
1: he, the, the friend of Commonweal is Erwin, who's my husband, which actually yesterday was 20 years to the date that we met, which was at a Passover Seder. Uh, and I don't know how I would introduce Erwin, but what I can say is that he's been a lot, he's been a partner in how this thinking happened. I mean, he's been a partner to the point where he's written some of the grants that I've worked with. But uh, also to um, to this way of thinking, because Erwin, who in Part of his life is is a rabbi in a congregation and he asks himself these questions about how do we construct meaning, especially in a world where the answer, God said so, doesn't work anymore. You know, in in, in 150 years ago, you could you could pull out the Bible and say, It says so, there's the answer. What else do you have to say? <laughs> what more can you find? That's not the world the It's not the world the way it is. Now, it is definitely not the world in the reconstructionist community of Sonoma County, which is is very far from thinking about the old man in the sky giving answers. So I think a lot of Erwin's work is asking these questions. How do we make meaning? How do we live with that ambiguity? Maybe there is a God. Maybe there's a superpower. Maybe it's an internal force. Maybe it's a Buddhist analysis of moving towards enlightenment. There can be all these different interpretations. So I find that our work, while... May manifest differently. I find that a lot of the way that he talks about his work is um, is influenced from from this kind of way of how we make meaning, which has to allow room for this kind of ambiguity. And I would suggest, if um, I don't know how we would connect him to Irwin's blog, but Irwin publishes his um, his you call them sermons, but they're yeah, it's articles. Six well. <laughs> it's called It Sicks Well on Blogspot.
2: And there's a lot of different approaches that address very complex issues. Irwin is a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, teacher. I, I love his posts on his blog, and um, Irwin, welcome to the community. We're so honored and appreciative that it's you're a, it's a, part of the community. Part of community. Yeah, So we look forward to hearing a lot from you uh, as we move forward. Oren Slosberg, thank you for being with us at the new school.
1: Thank you so much, yeah.
2: Michael. Thank you for inviting me to be
1: part of the You've been listening to a conversation with Warren Schlossberg and Michael Lerner. The New School of Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port Monkeys. Please visit our website at
0: tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining
6: us.